Hey, CNFers, look who's back. The Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. Yes, Scrivener was created by writers for writers. It brings all the tools you need to craft your first draft together in one handy app. Scrivener won't tell you how to write. You wouldn't want that anyway. It simply provides everything you need to start writing and keep writing. And if you enter the coupon code NONFICTION at checkout, you'll receive a 20% discount on the regular versions of Scrivener for Mac OS and Windows. That'll buy you some coffee to fuel that writing sesh. So whether you plot everything out first or plunge in, write, and restructure later, Scrivener works your way. Are you doing a kind of work that is useful to someone besides yourself? Don't be a dick. Well, hey, CNFer, how are you? CNF, this is a creative nonfiction podcast. Then again, you know that. The show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Today I talk to none other than Lydia Yuknovich. Yeah, I know. That happened. Before I get to that, keep the conversation going on social, at CNFPod. Link up to the show if you think it's worth sharing. Digital fist bumps for those who do. Well, maybe not for a while because I'm doing another one of those famous Brendan social media detoxes. And I'm not coming back until I finish my book. I need to type up 1,061 words per, per day to finish this draft by the end of September. So you'll excuse me if I don't get on that digital treadmill and give those digital fist bumps right away. It's not because I'm ignoring you. It's because I'm just trying to rage against the machine. Rage against the algorithm, man. Best way to riff is the uh, the newsletter and email. So hit me up. Hard. Just hit real hard. Head over to brendanamero.com hey, hey, to sign up for the monthly newsletter full of reading recommendations and other goodies. You know you're entered into a raffle to win all the books that I get just by being on the list. So every time you're there, you're entered. Once a month, no spam, can't beat it. And at the website, you'll find a way to ask me a question, anything. There's a little plug in there on the right side of the page and also in the show notes. So you can click the appropriate button, ask me anything and i'll play your question on air probably at the end of the show and answer it as best i can that's pretty cool right i think so so like i said earlier today i speak with lydia yuknovich a certifiable badass reading her work is like heading into the octagon man let's toast to that Me and alcohol don't jive these days, so I'm drinking this delicious non-alcoholic IPA, Run Wild IPA, that's what it's called, from Athletic Brewing. It is delicious, it's only 70 calories, and won't leave me hungover and drowning in a puddle of shame. That's not even a, a paid plug, that's just me very happy about finding a non-alcoholic beer that tastes delicious. You know, 
you need a personal trainer to get in shape. So why treat your writing any differently? Whether you're working on a book, a query letter, or an essay, I want to help you get where you need to go. Working with me gets you email correspondence, Skype calls, transcripts of our calls so you can refer to them as notes later, detailed evaluation of the work, and that person in the corner telling you it's all going to be okay. So if you're ready to level up, I'd be honored and thrilled to serve you and your work. Email me and we'll start a dialogue. How does that sound? Well, anywho, Lydia's latest work is Letter to My Rage. It's a short little ditty. It's published by Scribd. Lydia is also known for the memoir or anti-memoir or hybrid memoir, The Chronology of Water. And the novels, The Small Backs of Children, The Book of Joan, and her latest collection of stories called Verge. She's at Lydia Yuknovich on Twitter. She's LydiaYuknovich.net on the web. And she's a badass. And here she is. Huh. Given the situation we're in, like, uh, you know, how are you reorienting, uh, you know, to yourself in, in this time? Well, we're we're definitely holding steady uh, with minor plummets into despair and fear. <laughs> right. um, and, you know, we live under material conditions that could shift at any moment although it's okay right this second. And we also live in Portland, so there's some, you know, electricity happening <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, downtown. But in a general sense, you know, and I, I'm not the only one who can tap into this feeling. I know there are legions of us, but I'm an introvert. Mm. So, you know, the secret is out. This is how we live. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we kind of enjoy the solitude and aloneness. And that is not to say that uh, this is how I wish it would happen. The suffering is mind boggling and makes me shake every day. But the stillness and the uh, ability to go inward and that, you know, if you're a writer or an artist or somebody who needs that kind of solitude, it's worth at least saying out loud that that is available. And so we should probably be doing something useful with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of the same way. Like one of my favorite characters in all of li literature is uh, Ferdinand the Bull. And <laughs> just to be able to sit under, you know, sit under a tree and just like smell flowers and just look out into the pasture like that. That's kind of my ideal life is <laughs> Ferdinand the Bull. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, I, you know, given uh, I just the volume of great work that you've been able to put out into the world, you know, fiction, memoir, you know, you know, essay, you name it. Um, like I've been really sort of obsessed with groove lately. I, I've been listening to a lot of drummers just talk about how they go about the work and it's all about feel and groove. Mm -hmm. And I wonder for you, like, how do you tap into it? How do you get into the, the groove that you need to be into? So you can, you know, feel like you've had a nice little generative session at the ledger, so to speak. 
Well, I identify mightily with jazz musicians and drummers, so there always has to be some kind of cocoon of jazz in the room. But my primary metaphor for entering my own creative process is uh, ocean waves. Mm, um, yeah. sh- shockingly, it has to do with water. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, waves, what we see on the surface, that's not actually the wave. That's just the manifestation of the wave. And a wave getting born happens underwater in deep water. And the energy it takes, you know, swells under there and you can't really see it. Um, And the thing we see that comes all the way to shore and tickles your toes at the very end when it peters out is, you know, the last piece of it. And so because I'm not a person who writes every day at 9 (laughs) a.m., I had to find some kind of mode or groove, as you call it, or even image or metaphor that corresponds to how I do write, which is I go a long period of time with stuff in my gut or carrying it around in my body, and then it accumulates (laughs) and builds energy. And by the time I'm putting it on the page, it's like spilling over. It's coming out of me. And I got to sit down for like eight hours or 12 hours and, and do it, do the thing. That's amazing. It's like you can feel it coming. You're out there just kind of bobbing in the ocean. You see the wave coming. You got to paddle like mad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Or then it's gone. Plus now I'm 57. So when it's gone, you have to wait a long time. <laughs> I, I there's a a moment um in your brilliant TED talk which I I recently just watched twice again like I had seen it a while ago and I watched it two more times just ahead of our conversation because I just love love it so much and uh there's that point in it where you write about the women writer titans that you were able to meet in New York and uh, I was wondering if maybe you could talk about that like talk about who those women are and why they're so important to you Right. Well, a couple of them were Carol Meso and Lynn Tillman. And what was important to me about them is that they were, you know, edge writers. They were experimental women writers who were breaking rules. And, you know, not the mainstream super bestseller, fancy rich lady writers, but the, (laughs) the the people on on an edge I wanted to be part of, an edge I wanted to step into, because my writing didn't look like anything around me. And so the Titan element, to me, I don't know who did and didn't know who these women were, but in my personal canon, they were everything because they sort of ripped open a space for... Uh, writers who were inventing to inhabit. And plus, they were just hot. (laughs) (laughs) Always helps. (laughs) And to me, hot may be different than definitions for other people. But I think women over 50 years old enter a hotness that we haven't even caught up with language-wise. So um, it's like they step into the you know, no more fucks left to give. And they're Mm -hmm. at the zenith of their intellects and creativity. And they may or may not have had children. It doesn't matter. Their bodies are entering this, you know, perfect creature status (laughs) to me. So that's what I meant when I said hot. Yeah, it's, 
and when you when you were looking at your own writing and and looking outward of course and then seeing like the, there was writing that didn't look or sound like me you know how did you start to in, inhabit your own writing that writing style that is so like uniquely you and and to sh- kind of shed off you know the doubts that maybe I should be trying to sound sound like somebody else somebody more mainstream and and live on that edge well i guess i'm in some ways i'm luckily misfitted <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean my luck was that um i i couldn't make the stories i wanted to tell about my body or the fiction stories i wanted to tell about experiences i couldn't make them fit the traditional forms i tried really hard i really tried <laughs> mm-hmm. and um it's not to say i didn't love reading those forms i did i have a phd so of course i loved reading the tradition but I couldn't make my stories or my body or anything about my life fit. So the failure moment of not being able to fit turned into this kind of alchemy of, well, all right, then I'll write this other way. And if nobody wants to look at it, then at least I will have put some energy that's eating me alive on the inside out of my body into the outside of the world (laughs) and you know I'll be less insane with the stuff I'm carrying around and it was I had to make a choice that it would be okay with me if nobody ever read it Um, but the process of self-expression became more important to me than holding it all in and so something about the failure something about you know reaching to express anyway Something about not caring what came back just loosened it all up for me. And at that point, you know, who cares what anyone else thinks? Yeah, and to to your point of that that hotness of of language and everything, I, it's just that is such a great way of putting it. So so simple and 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 so illustrative because that's how like when I read your when I when I read your work, I always just feel like I feel this this pulse of energy, of energy, of hotness, of, of feeling like I just was sparring with someone. Like I, the words <laughs> just kind of, they hit me across the mouth in such a way that I'm like, Ooh, that, that's gonna, that's gonna smart for a while. And, uh, <laughs> and I, and I love that about you. And it, there's a, there's a courage behind that. And I just, I, I feel like, uh, you know, it's great to read someone who is comfortable in that ability to be so unbridled. Well, I also, I think it shows up a lot in my work and, my work with other people too. I I probably have a very singular and myopic goal, which is, can I get the reader to feel something in their body as, as they read something I've made? And so sometimes I mean that gently. Sometimes I mean it in a shake you up way. Sometimes I mean to agitate and other times I want to sing you a little lullaby, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. the, the actual fizzle, physical experience of being a reader uh, it's it's in my mind that we have to help each other remember how to be in each other's bodies every day of our lives because the culture try to tries to trick you away from that yeah and and tries to trick you into uh, you know fitting into other people's molds and other yeah. people's bodies like that's the shape you should be yeah and if not, you're worthless. Yeah, right. Exactly. So 
boo that. <laughs> Not for that. I am for, you know, I, I like to, I guess, I I like the idea that you could make people's bodies vibrate when they read a book. Or that, I've said this before, I like the idea that a book could happen to you. And so I'm trying to contribute to that sort of art making. Oh, that's a great way of putting it, of a book happening to you. That's um, and that that's great. When I read Chronology of Water, that was definitely like the experience I had to. I'm like, holy shit! Like what? <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Like what happened to me here? Oh, hooray! And, yeah, yeah. And and as a result of that, I was working at a bookstore here in Eugene, and anytime your book came in as a, you know, whether it came in secondhand, we had some of them and people were just looking for books. I'm like, well, here's one for you. <laughs> and, and no doubt when they would come back and be like, I read that. And they were just like universally just like, holy fucking shit. Like, I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> right. Like, so they talk about writing this, this uh, invisible wave that kind of came up and you just had to, you just had to, you know, ride, ride that shit and hope and hope for the best, right? Completely, completely. That book came out of me in a fever and a frenzy and a wave. And I didn't even want it to. When I saw what was coming out on the page, I'll be honest with you. I'm like, I don't want to write. <laughs> I don't want to go there. <laughs> Look at that. But uh, by that point, the wave was too big. And, you know, expression or representation was the only option or it might have eaten me alive. Right. Yeah. It's a kind of one of those things where I, I think uh, my friend Bronwyn Dickey, she says that she quotes Henry Rollins saying like, you know, uh, uh, what what is it? It was just like uh, people who write music are the people who are saved by music. Mm-hmm. And, and likewise, she's just like the people who are drawn to stories are the people who are like saved by stories. So I yeah. feel like in a sense, like you, you know, writing that book in a lot of ways, probably, you know, it, it saved you in a sense. I imagine. Of course, absolutely. A hundred times every day of my life. It's still, it's still the thing that, you know, put me back in my body and it's, it's, um, I'm grateful to something. I'm grateful to water. I'm grateful to the universe. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and and the one of the you know early seeds of that book, I imagine, was in the writing group that you were a part of, where you know you uh, you had an exchange with Chuck Palahniuk about uh, ab- about you know your uh, skepticisms around memoir and everything. I was wondering maybe you could uh, you know share us what that kind of interaction was like that sent you down the path that eventually would let that let you uh, turn loose on what would become Chronology of Water. Well, we were having a parking lot discussion about the pluses and minuses of memoir writing, and I was blathering about something to do with my least favorite memoirs are the kind that celebratize the authors and make them into shiny, famous things. Mm-hmm. And he started laughing, and then he he actually parking lot dared me to write a memoir. <laughs> so it was kind of this silly joke dare thing, but at least he didn't hit me in the ear. Um, <laughs> uh, but I have to be honest with you, there's a different story that happened long before that when I was about 26 and I was going to school at the University of Oregon in Eugene. And I was in Diana Abujaber's creative writing class, which I had infiltrated 
since I wasn't in the MFA program. And I turned in a 10-page set of lyric fragments and tried to call that a story. And everyone in the MFA class except one person was like, this isn't a story. This is stupid. You don't know what you're doing. You don't belong here. Except for Diana. And she said, not only is this a real story, but um, I think it could be a book someday. And the name of that story, it was the chronology of water. (laughs) So 25 years later, I was sort of grown up enough to try it. That, uh, yeah. And the, the fragmentary nature of, of, of that is something that you like, you really latch onto as a, as a mode, a delivery yep. system, so to speak. I wonder, maybe you can talk to that and how, maybe how you arrive at that, how that feels natural uh, as a natural extension of, uh, of your taste in your, in your art. Well, so nothing about my life has uh, jived in terms of a linear narrative that holds still and makes sense. My <laughs> my whole life has felt like a series of jolts and ruptures and retinal flashes. And when I hit upon the narrative fragment as a possibility, it's like I could feel my own spine taking shape. I, like I could feel my arms. It's like, oh, oh, this could be the story. If you told it in pieces that kind of came at you, it would feel like what it felt like to be you in your life. (laughs) And uh, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there are legions of people who either come from difficulty or damage or abuse or poverty or uh, dispossession or who are gravitate toward writing in pieces uh, as a way to tell the story differently than linear seamless narrative. And what it lets you do is admit that storytelling moves it can move around it can be broken apart it can repeat it can accumulate it can disperse um and so for some of us that mode is it's not you know hey here's a wacky mode to play around with it just feels precise it feels like the exact language of our bodies and not some just you know zany effort <laughs> mhm yeah it what do you think readers expect of you and and how do you maybe you know cut against that grain or sometimes maybe go with that grain if that's something that you carry with you i have no earthly idea what readers expect of me <laughs> and i'm i don't have any deep attachment to that entire matrix i i guess i'm in the um category of people who they sit alone in their underwear in a room and make their small little thing and then they you know they blow it out like a dandelion thing out into the world and that's the last time I look at it like I don't it doesn't belong to me anymore it's whatever it's going to be out there in the world I hope it's useful if it's not okay but you know then I just go back to my little room in my underwear and make another little dumb little thing in front of me. <laughs> like, uh, but the not funny part is that the piece of the process I can't ignore is the part where you sit alone and make something with your hands. I, it's a matter of mental health. I, if I wasn't writing and making little arty things, 
I'd, I'd be dead. So it's the process part for me. And what people think of it out in the world, uh, Jesus, they're going to think what they're going to think. All kinds of people, troll people are going to hate you and hate what you write and hate your shoes and your hair, and your <laughs> everything. And then a few people you may connect with, with your art and it's worth it. Even if it's like two people. Mm-hmm. What would you identify as something that you struggle with when you sit down to write? Oh, I suppose. Well, first of all, I don't mind struggle. I prefer struggle mm. since uh, that has been my primary experience coming into the world. So I identify with struggle. Um, and so that's a little different angle on the question. But I I do... Uh, have some anxieties around usefulness as an author. Um, I don't. I don't think it's true that you know we need everything from everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I kind of sometimes I think about you know is this useful and to whom and why and so. Uh, maybe that's that's one I I'm a little wobbly on. I waver on that, and I don't think it's a terrible idea to wake up one day and say, "Today's the d- you should do something else now." You, <laughs> mm-hmm. I ju- I don't know what it would be because Brendan, I have no skill sets. <laughs> I don't know what the hell it would be, um, but that's one I I sort of orbit around like usefulness i just want things i make to be useful to somebody and so if that starts to wane that that can give me doubt in listening to your to your ted talk too like when you 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 put your you put us in in the sort of in in the shoes of you when you were you know young 30s and you were you know um looking up at these women in their fifties that broke the world open for you. And now as a woman in your fifties who you have no doubt broken the world open for other people, it's just, have you like, you know, reconciled who you were and who you are now and what you've been able to do for, a, you know, countless writers that are coming up behind you. Is that something you've been able to kind of, you know, swim in, so to speak? I think so. I think so. Because as a younger woman, I was, well, when I wasn't busy trying to destroy myself, which was a lot of the time, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was trying to break in. I was a born agitator, born fighter, born, you know, like, break the door down if you have to. And the person I am now, it's not like she's gone, uh, but I have a different use value, which is jam your shoulder and foot in the door so other people can get through and hold it open, you know, try to hold it open. And those two women are related. Those are just two different forms of a kind of energy, you know. And so the the older I get, the more I'm watching for, okay, what form should this energy take now and how does it need to change? Yeah, I I read an interview where you said too, like where there's a time to be the one who steps out of the way. Yep. Also, yep, I'm looking hard at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, given the times, um, 
there's all kind of ways you can do work. And some of that work can be off stage, off center, behind the curtain, and it's still incredibly valid work. Yeah, and I, I also read too that uh, that painting is a big influence on you as well. And I think it's uh, a way to, you know, you can, in a sense, you can, you know, step aside to that for your own kind of inspiration, open the door for other people, but also I'll put, put stuff in your tank yeah. too. So, so how important is, is that and other artistic media that, uh, that does maybe uh, create the, the wave that's pulsing deep in the ocean that will hopefully crest into something that you can ride? Painting is huge for me. It's not huge in that I do it a lot because I'm too chicken shit. Like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still trying to step into some courage there because I love it. And it opens up my whole body to artistic rhythm expression. Like it makes my fingers tingle. Uh, but looking at the work of other painters <laughs> is mind-bogglingly important to me um something about the abstract image i'm particularly fond of abstract expressionism but any painting really something about the painted image just um it's like it bypasses language which is my environment for the most part and so i'm always in the ocean of language but painting bypasses that word thing and more like painting is more uh, direct to my actual internal organs <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, it speaks to me deeply but I turned out to be a word creature so <laughs> I I read that the that you said the the whole process of writing or making art is a metaphor for that stepping into an unknown possibility. And so the fear is a portal. And I, I love that. So how did, how did you arrive at that and to be able to dance with that fear, to enter that portal and to write things, create things that are uncomfortable? I think writing the chronology of water was a big breakthrough moment for me in terms of your question that I wrote that book uh, kind of, put me through the crucible of fear in a very tangible way. Um, and so writing that book, and I guess a little bit that damn TED talk, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly thought it was possible I was going to die. And I was really glad my husband Andy was there, because if I did die, he could just kind of quietly collect me off the stage. <laughs> and, you know, we could just sort of leave. <laughs> um, but I think the more true answer is that I've been afraid all my life, Brendan. I was the kid who was the crybaby and I wet my pants a lot and I was scared to talk. I was scared of my father. I was scared of being out in the world. Um, so terror was an early common experience for me and somewhere I don't know, in my tweens or early teens. Um, I don't think I could have articulated it this way then, but it sort of dawned on me I had to make a choice that I was either going to die from all that terror um, and, you know, just never be able to get through life, or I was going to have to turn it into a door. 
and and walk into it, walk through it. And um, when, once I got myself out of my father's house, it seemed possible I could keep choosing to not make fear the end point, but make fear something you step through. And and it's still true. I'm still scared every day of something. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd prefer to stay in bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I prefer not to leave the house. Um, but I know that's a form of stasis. And you know, you get one life that plays out like this anyway. And so, if fear is part of mine, then I get to decide how to be in relationship to it. Yeah, and your TED Talk last at last count nearly three point six million people, or at least <laughs> crazy, three, unbelievable three point six million views. Uh, it's it's incredible, and it's so well delivered, and and uh, I can't imagine the work that must have gone into to do that. So maybe you can uh, tell me a little bit about how you arrived at that talk of being a misfit, and you know talking about the radiance that falls on all of us and how you were able to prepare and deliver that. So what was that process like? (laughs) (laughs) Heavy prescription medication. (laughs) um, Well, the the talk is based a little bit off of a chapter uh, that I'd written in the Chronology of Water, and it's kind of distilled from that, and it morphs a little bit from that. And how you prepare is the TED folk coach you for several months um, in screen time. They they let you practice and then they give you feedback, which was horrifying. If you're an introvert, it's just like, oh, my God, they're looking at me. Their faces are in my home. They're going to tell me I'm terrible. <laughs> so that was actually hard for me. <laughs> Uh, but they kind of coach you and help you. And uh, the only reason I was able to do it at all, though, is my husband, Andy, who practiced with me every day for months. And and he would, like, rattle potato chip bags really loudly or, you know, spill things or make a ruckus and try to fuck me up on purpose so I could figure out how to, you know, keep going. Um, and, you know, you just break it down into little pieces and try to memorize them. Um, although not everybody does that. Some TED Talk people read from, you know, pieces of paper or note cards, which I could have done. But you know what, Brendan, I just didn't want it to be true that people like me couldn't do it. Mm. <laughs> and I know I knew there would be some other people out there who they just want people who are as misfitted as we are or nervous or scared or bumbly to also get to be up there. And I saw much more bumbly people than me, but nobody but Andy will ever know how close to death I actually was. Wow. It's, well, it, it's so incredibly moving. And, and I just, it's some of the best 12 minutes anybody can spend. Oh, you're it, kind. I, I, I mean, it, and it's just the, everything you talk about, and maybe it's because maybe on, on, on a certain level too, I feel, I, I, feel what you're talking about there. And, um, and you also, you talk about the, the, the shame that a misfit can carry in that. And also that feeling of maybe you don't deserve, yeah. you know, to live out your dream or you live out your vision, whatever that is. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, just maybe you can talk about how, you know, where that, the seed of that, where that comes from and how you're so 
you know, you're beautifully able to articulate that. Well, it's true for me and my life and identity. And it's also true for the people I tend to collaborate with and work with and try to be of use to that, you know, some people call it being damaged or broken or, you know, come coming from rough beginnings of some sort that left you feeling fragmented in ways you just never quite get over. <laughs> um, it's helped me to understand that maybe there are things we can redefine from that very position, like what we spoke of earlier fragments could still make a story or um, looking down at the ground at worms and insects and dirt and and seeds is a form of hope it looks different than somebody who looks upward for hope but it's hope nonetheless or you know that I just think hope and courage and ability imagination it looks different on some of us and so instead of saying you're doing it wrong or you're not following the path of everybody else i i wish more of us would start telling the stories of how it's different for some of us and uh our accomplishments are as beautiful as anybody's even if they're a little bit crooked Yeah. And frankly, like looking at something that's crooked is far more interesting and engaging and it's going to spark something else in you instead of looking at something that is, you know, you know, perfectly symmetrical. And however, it's just a. Well, you know, I agree with that. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, how did you arrive at this uh, this this short piece um letter letter to my rage how did how did that manifest itself well i had been talking to the amazing woman who was my editor amy for a little while about this letter to form i'm like i don't know about that and she was like well what if it was a letter to some state of being and i was like that's a little more interesting (laughs) (laughs) And so then, you know, like all my ideas, I went to bed for a few nights and somewhere in my dreamscape, a question formed like around what has the worth of your rage been in your life? Um, And because it was in a dreamscape, it could, you know, it didn't matter that it was a weird question. (laughs) (laughs) And so then that week I started thinking about, you know, I've definitely talked to my own fear before, like sat down and had a scotch with my own fear and tried to have a relationship and maybe change that relationship. But I've been so busy in my life using anger, like the fuel that I hadn't really sat down and had a conversation like that with anger and it just seemed like a good zeitgeisty time to to start asking better questions about rage and how we carry it. Like maybe get in there and see if there's a way to unbuild it and find better uses for it. So it was a little bit of a weird evolution. 
the only piece of the process I trust entirely is letting my dreamscape work it out. Do you keep a little notebook by your bedstand, yep. uh, nightstand, just for this purpose alone? Yep. Yep. <laughs> and over the years, I've come to trust it much more than waking life. <laughs> Right. You write in the in the letter too that, you know, where can a, or you ask in it, like, where can a woman carry her rage but in her body? And uh, I just love that, you know, speaking of like the vibrations you talk about too, it's just like that that's something that probably, you know, you know, just it, it shakes in every woman's body, especially, especially these days where everything seems under attack, under assault. Always, always. My entire lifetime, the lifetimes before mine, the lifetimes after mine. Um, but, you know, it's also the perfect time to be deconst deconstructing what we've understood as our own rage, because maybe our understanding is also in dire need of change. <laughs> mm. When does, you know, when did you become, you know, when did rage start riding shotgun? in your life or maybe even taking the wheel like when is when you know when does that when did it enter your body so to speak well it's such a tricky energy isn't it and i tried to start at the origin story of my life in that essay you know so i start being a baby coming from my mother's body it's like and asking is that where it started is that the origin story and then I moved to my father and our house and growing up. And, you know, I kind of moved through rage stages as if they're developmental in a life. Um, but at a certain point, you have to kind of face off with the use value. And so I can say a sentence like, it is absolutely true that rage, my rage, got me out of my father's house. And my father's house was abusive. So that's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> Some of us can say that we needed rage to get free of something. On the other hand, when rage just spirals in a body, or when rage festers in your gut or heart or spine, it can turn self-destructive or harmful to others. And so that's not good. <laughs> Uh, and so by tracking the sort of, the sort of organism of rage in my own body, even if all I got to in this essay is, okay, now we could have a conversation. <laughs> um, that would be enough. It's like you have to sift it loose from your story and your body and your life just to get to the better questions. So Maybe there's a, another essay down the road that's like, okay, I cleared that out. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, you know, composted this shit. <laughs> Could we now talk about what might be some better distributed and more useful ways to use our own very formidable kinds of angers? Do you find that it's it's more fun and engaging for you as a writer to live and write in in questions versus you know trying to tidy up everything nicely and answer it just to kind of swim in the philosophy of it yeah i guess i'm one of those people who i'm not even sure i believe in answers <laughs> but mm -hmm. i do believe in 
energy and wrestling energy and redistributing energy to make better and better questions. Yeah, I think the life of things for me is in the questioning and, and less in the concluding. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And it and in this piece too, it it is uh it, it's one of the first things that I've read that's kind of come out of the pandemic times too. And so there's there's a rage and an anger built into that and are just in our current climate as we're cresting towards our most volatile election season probably of all <laughs> almost of all time yeah so it's just like you feel that you know speaking of the pulse of energy i i feel like that's coming kind of underneath this as well right agree uh but i've been mightily interested in writers like arundhati roy's essay called pandemic as portal or uh Writer, my friend Janice Lee has turned me on to recently, uh, Bio Amafalaki, who writes about the um, the virus being both, of course, this terrible thing and, and there is suffering everywhere, but it is also this generative, unknown space of change and possibility. And, and uh, so I'm trying to hold open some nuance in my own understanding of, of the virus and pandemic. You know, trees and animals in the sky and water are happier right this second. Right. I mean, not yeah. so much in places where there are fires or drought or terrible, horrible suffering happen. But, uh, you know, shifts are taking place uh, geologically and atmospherically that are worth having a look at and the people who worry me the most are the people walk around yearning for things to go back to quote-unquote normal i mean if this Mm. isn't an astonishingly big opportunity for change if we miss this too i i don't know man (laughs) (laughs) i don't know you know I mean, it's like everything is ripping open. And if we still can't manage to change, I just hope, I, you know, I hope that's not how it goes down. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's, it's pulled, it's pulled back. It's kicked over rocks. It's opening a lot of scars. And yeah. it's just like, this is that, that, uh, that really a watershed moment yeah. to make systemic change and also just. I don't know, just how, how we live yep. too, and, and not being as materialistic and not being so greedy. Exactly. I don't want to go back to normal. Normal's how we got here. Absolutely. And there's a, you know, a, in the letter too, there's just so many, so many great lines in it. It's such a, it's great that you can kind of read, you could read this thing and yeah, I'm a pretty slow reader and I can read it in like 20 or 30 minutes. And it's so great to be able to ingest this thing. Um, and uh, some one line that struck struck me just so so brilliantly. It was just like mirror mirror on the wall. Who the no oh, fuck you? I <laughs> I was never the fairest of anyone. I was instead a swimmer. I just <laughs> love. I just love that. that. Was one of those lines that just comes comes across and hits you across the jaw. You're like, yeah. <laughs> well, I I do tend to get myself into some trickiness. Um, on occasion with lines like that, um, when I start trying to talk about how if you keep women looking in their mirrors at themselves, you can trick them into forgetting that they have considerable agency. Um, but it's best if I just leave 
my ideas and feelings about those things in pieces of creative writing. <laughs> because mm-hmm. when I start getting in there trying to, um, you know, enter the cultural discussions, I just get into all kind of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find like when you, like maybe in the early early drafting of your essays or, or, or your writing that some of that stuff maybe crops through a little or comes surfaces a little more than you're, than you're comfortable doing. And then in the rewrites, you're like, yeah, maybe I should turn the volume down. Oh, never, never. (laughs) I just, I just feel like I should, um, I should put all my fire into, onto the page and like never at one time, one time I entered a Facebook debate on yoga pants (laughs) yoga pants and I got pillar I got fillets (laughs) all right well what do all right tell tell us a little more no fucking way I have (laughs) nothing to say whatsoever about yoga pants I sounds like no way there's no way nope nope there's a there's also another great line too, and uh, you know I swim harder inside of books than I did in the pool where I won so many medals. And uh, as someone who was an athlete too, and you know when you put so much of your your oomph behind whatever your sport is, and then when you're able to redirect that same kind of energy into this other thing, it was just such a great way of putting it. And um, I just I love that. I think you um. I read that, uh, what is there, Natalie uh, Sorot or Sorot? Mm-hmm. Sorot, is that how, how uh-huh. do you pronounce her? Sorot. Sorot, yeah. And it just made me think of that when I was coming, read that line. Then I read like, some of these writers that kind of like cracked you open. It was uh, like when you're swimming in books like that, you know, what does that look like for you? Are you writing in the margins? Are you taking notes? Like how did, how are you swimming in the books the way you did in the pool? I do write in them so that I'm kind of in conversation with them. Um, But I think what's unique about me is if I'm completely, you know, turned on by something I'm reading, I take it into my actual body and I go on long walks or I go swimming. I repeat the lines. I memorize parts of it. I have a, an idactic memory. So um, when I look at a page, my brain kind of takes a picture of the page and so I can see the visual of it. Um, and like, so, you know, Franz Fanon is still part of my, <laughs> my image bank and my, he's in my body forever. And, you know, the books that have been the most meaningful to me, I think they sort of become part of my body. Yeah. He wrote in, in letter, letter to my rage that they can rearrange your DNA. I, I, so I think people think, when I say stuff like that, they think I mean it as a metaphor and I don't <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the all. nuclear Nucleotides are just, they're just like making new pairs and yeah, like, yeah we're talking new genetic engineering. Yes. <laughs> that's uh that's great. Uh, yeah. And it's when you were, you know, as, as you're, as you were coming, uh, coming into your own skin as a writer and doing, doing your thing, how did you stem off the, the, I guess the, 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 those competitive urges and those jealousy feelings that sometimes creep in as, as artists and creative people and looking over your shoulder, I wonder how, how you might've processed that. So you were, you know, putting better energy into your work. Well, so yeah, I guess the way my life has played out, um, 
jealousy's not something that makes its way in. I mean, I have an example. So I was accepted into Columbia in the creative writing program in my early 20s. It was the same year I won the writing prize to go to New York. Uh, And I decided not to go because I was broke and I took a job instead. And that's so like me. (laughs) Like, let the dream float away like a red balloon and just put your head down and take the job to support yourself and others. So I'm like, I'm something about my hardwiring is about usefulness, which I noticed has come up out of my face talking to you about seven times now. Um, And so, so I think of things like, I don't think of things like, oh, I wish I was as pretty as so-and-so or as famous a writer as so-and-so, or I wish that would happen to me. I think things like, are you doing a kind of work that is useful to someone besides yourself? Don't be a dick. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that's how my hardwiring goes. So it's like my energy doesn't even go that direction. I mean, I yeah. see things I love and they're amazing to me. And it's amazing to me that any of us survive. It's amazing to me that more people don't give up. And so um, I'm so, I'm so on a different radar that things like jealousy, maybe it sounds like I'm lying, but it's like, I, I just, there's too much work to do. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to love the people I love the best way I can. And so that would subtract energy from what I want to do. (laughs) So I just don't do it. Yeah. It's a fuel that doesn't burn clean. No, no, that's right. And it also doesn't even perform entropy where it changes forms. It just becomes static and, um, yeah, not interested. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. Did did you ever think... that uh you know say not uh, not ex- not accepting or going to columbia there or or when you went to new york as as you illustrate in your ted talk that for for some people they might think that that was that's a way of hiding and do, do you feel like there was ever a part of you that you know felt like you were that you were hiding and not manifesting yourself out of I don't know, out of out of something internal that you just like kind of like you said in the TED talk too, like maybe you didn't feel like you deserved it. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I do know I didn't think I deserved it. I still think things like that, even though I understand that's not really a healthy way to walk around. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I know it's deep in me. I'm not sure about this hiding business. Maybe I have to go think about that and write an essay and get back to you. Maybe. Oh, please. No, really. (laughs) That's, that's a cool question. I'm going to go think about that. Uh, But I can say for certain that um, I have a, a masochism thread in me. Like if it doesn't hurt, it's not good. And I'm going to be working that one out the rest of my life. I'm a little better. I'm a tiny bit better, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I cop to that. I definitely have that. Um, and you can see how that would get in the way. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not so great. <laughs> right. 
So in the in the in the process of uh, of creating something, whether you feel like you know diving in the short stories or essays or whatever, where would you identify as a place where you feel the most alive and most engaged in the in the process? Well, not too long ago, I would have said fiction every time, and it, it's still pretty true. The only thing that's changed for me is that um, this is another one where. I should not enter the public discourse on this, <laughs> like yoga pants. Um, uh, I'm starting to not care at all about the distinctions between forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm even a little suspicious of them. Because <laughs> when I look at, you know, Laylee Long Soldier's poetry book, Whereas, or Maggie Nelson's book, the Argonauts or Bluets or Therese Myatt's book, Heartberries. I care less and less about, you know, or Claudia and Keene's book, Citizen. I care less and less about its, um, you know, preciousness as poetry or prose or fiction or nonfiction. And I feel like the forms that writers and artists are playing with now, uh, crisscross and um, inform and deform and reform each other in the most fascinating ways. So I think I'm more interested in that idea than I am, you know, where are you most at home in the different kinds of writing? Mm. Yeah, you've said that you think the the membrane is quite thin between fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, like a semi-permeable membrane. Totally. Totally. And I think that about poetry and prose. I mean, I was just teaching in three different writing intensives and I, they were all for prose writers and the source material I kept bringing in half of it was poetry. And they kept asking me, well, why are we looking at poetry? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. how have you gone your whole life as a prose writer and not wrestled with poetry, you know, and language in this way? What are you doing? <laughs> right, right. How do you even dare make a sentence <laughs> if you haven't looked at the line? What do you mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like you got to there's different kind when you go up to the the gas tank there's there are three different nozzles of stuff and like you you <laughs> you got to you got to you can pick one you can you got to fuel yourself on some, on something and you can say like you know what I'm going to put a little of this in the tank and I'm going to try to take a little, you know, cherry pick how we, and just like put it in there, put it, put in the slurry and blend it up and see what the hell comes out. Slurry. I like that. Yes. Yeah, slurry. Yeah. <laughs> well, also I'm, I'm no, you know, I have a body of work out there now where the word hybrid comes up. So I'm definitely into hybrid forms of writing. That's amazing. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, Lydia. This was a, a just a lot of fun to get to just talk about some talk about some stuff, talk shop about so your latest. So yeah. Much. Oh, of course. Yeah, and your your wonderful you know, this latest piece is a uh, letter to my rage is 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 wonderful. It's uh, everything I've come to expect when I crack op- crack the spine on a Lydia Yuknovich <laughs> piece, piece of work. So uh, you're a certifiable badass, and thank you so much for coming on the on the podcast. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. And that was a kick in the pants. So how'd you like that? That was pretty great, right? 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Scrivener for their continued support of the podcast. Be sure to use that promo code nonfiction to get the best writing software you'll ever use. 20% off. Do it. Okay? Yeah, so trying to stay positive, staying away from social media has helped immensely. Yet, we run into the trouble of how do we get the word out regarding our work if you're not peddling it on the socials, right? My theory for now is just, or strategy, whatever, make the best possible show for you. Just for you. Yet you, I'm looking right, I'm looking right at you, man. Like, lock eyes, come on. Maybe, maybe you'll tell a friend and I hope you will. That's, you know, if you don't, that's okay. No bigs. You know, consider leaving a kind review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcast, but that's the big one. Almost at 100. Pretty cool. That'd be great to get to 100. It it means something, you know? Trying to take my body and mind more seriously, you know? No alcohol for a long time. Haven't had any booze for about two weeks. Dealing with some issues there. Gotta exercise more. Might be taking some Adderall soon. That might help. Scatterbrain. Adult ADHD or some shit. Who the hell knows what's going on? Talk to somebody about that. You know, got to leave social media behind. Eat more vegetables. Oh, and and keep bullet journaling. That's going well. Really into it. Like, really into it. Call Call me a nerd. Whatever. It's working. I haven't really bit my nails in a couple weeks. I know that's kind of gross, but, you know, it's working. It's working. I I doubt you're still listening. Are you still there? I hope. I'm I'm putting this this, kind of thing uh, at the end of the show just to play around. Get you to those interviews a little bit quicker than normal. You dig that essay I wrote last week? Yeah, it's a work in progress. What are you going to do? Didn't get any any messages that I know of. Uh, so it's either cool or maybe it isn't, but I figured I'd just put it out there, you know, just throw it out there, put some good vibes into this world, trying to be more positive, not, you know, not be such a drag, you know, I can be a bit of a drag sometimes, (sighs) well, the fact of the matter is though, if you can't do interviews, see ya!